This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Paige Dickey is a gardener, garden designer, author of many notable books on gardening, and co-founder of the Garden Conservancy's Open Days Scheme in the United States. She joins me today to share more about her own garden life journey and the many, sometimes surprising ways in which we as gardeners grow, including by trial and error, through lifelong learning in relationship to plants, and as described in her newest book, Uprooted, she shares the sorrows and joys, griefs and expansions of leaving one beloved garden and finding yourself rooting into your next garden differently but still lovingly. I am so pleased to be speaking with you today. Welcome, Paige. I'm so honored to be with you, Jennifer. So, you know, I've I've given you a little introduction, but would you share with listeners your current relationship with plants and gardens, both personally and professionally at at this current sort of moment in your life, Paige? Well, sure. I moved to a new place, a new garden uh, five years ago or almost six years ago and started from fresh after having been taking care of a garden, another garden for 34 years. So so it's all been a very much of a fresh start, this time in a wilder land in that we have meadows and woods, fields and woods. And um, I've made small gardens in the last five years around the house. But more important, I've become familiar with and nurtured the fields and woods that surround the house and uh, learned a great deal from discovering the wildflowers, the grasses, the plants that grow in those two habitats, actually really several habitats that, that are here that are brand new to me, um, brand new because we're we have a calcareous soil, meaning we're on limestone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never had that before. And we're also in northern, more climate. So it's colder, which has its ups and downs. So it's a, it's a new adventure in, in my gardening life. Yeah. So, you know, I would love to have you take us back to some of your earliest experiences that that grew you into a person for whom this would be a calling professionally and personally throughout your entire life. And maybe I would ask you to start by reading the section in the book about your Aunt Helen. I'm happy to do that, Jennifer. Um, my sweetest memories of growing up our time spent with my mother's sister, my beloved Aunt Helen, at her small 18th century Cape Cod home in Hingham, Massachusetts. She was lovely looking as a young woman and accomplished, graduating from Wellesley College with honors in 1923, where she developed a love of classics, history, and poetry. She never married, but had many friends and was active all her life supporting the arts and land conservation. In many ways, she was the opposite of my mother, industrious but reserved at a large party with no interest in the trappings of society. Her beauty had faded somewhat when I knew her, her figure short and generously wide, a Beatrix Potter of a woman who dressed sensibly in woolens for the country life she led. Mornings with Aunt Helen's were spent walking with her two bearded collies on trails she carefully maintained through 30 acres of mature oak and beech woods behind her house. And it was on these walks that I learned from her the names of wildflowers and birds. I remember one warm day when I was quite young resting with her on a fragrant bed of pine needles in the woods while she taught me the Lord's Prayer. I am agnostic at best, but I have to this day a fondness for that prayer. 
mornings at Aunt Helen's were also for, for bake, breaking <laughs> baking bread, a sensuous occupation I learned to love in those visits. And meals were inevitably delicious, thought out and celebrated daily using vegetables and fruit from her garden. For she was a gardener, and I mostly remember spring borders full of lungworts, Jacob's Ladder, and Virginia bluebells, interspersed with myriad small bulbs that had naturalized, Scyllas, Chionodoxas, grape hyacinths. I remember, too, sitting with her on the terrace outside the kitchen shelling peas, popping in my mouth as many as I dropped into the colander. I first dabbled in drawing and painting with watercolors in Hingham with my aunt, an occupation she enjoyed throughout her life. Evenings were spent reading out loud after dinner, E.S. Nesbitt when I was young, the five children in It and the Phoenix in the Carpet. Later, there was Austin and Trollope to fill our nights. One day in her mid eighties, Aunt Helen called me with the triumphant news that she had climbed the old maple that bowed its limbs over ledge rock by her driveway. She said she'd been thinking of doing it for years. On her last visit to Duck Hill in her early nineties, we walked slowly around the garden, her arm entwined with mine. Oh, Pagey, she said, if I were just a little younger, I'd have you dig me up a piece of this and that. I bring this up because my aunt was my mentor. She taught me about everything I still love in life, from dogs, to books, to food, to gardens, to paths in woods. But also because I think it was at her home in Hingham, spending time with her there, that I first knew I loved New England. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. It is a really moving uh, section of the opening part of the book and really sets the tone for um, both your incredibly knowledgeable uh, plantsmanship, but also your love of the literary side of it, the artistic side of it, and the communal part of it as well, I think. So you were you were born and raised in and around Philadelphia, and your parents weren't particularly gardeners, but luckily Aunt Helen into the gap. Um, tell us a little more about your your progression from there into what would become your your endeavors before and then into Duck Hill uh, before we get to. Church house. Right. Um, I don't know why, Jennifer, but right from the beginning, when I was a child, I I had a, a, a penchant, you might say. I had a leaning toward plants. I remember acquiring house plants in my bedroom when I was a little girl. And when <laughs> when I was about twelve, I made my I asked my father. This was up in New Hampshire where we had a, a, a log cabin summer house. And I asked my father if I could make a garden. And he said, of course he said yes. And I, I the odd thing was, it was an opening in the woods and I felt the need to, to, to design something. And so I, I got a wheelbarrow and I called all these stones, these the biggest pieces of granite I could lift. And I made a circle with these, with these stones. And then I made a path with them. Maybe that was the beginning of my paths in gardens. And then horrifies me to think now, I went into the woods and dug up polypody ferns and orchids and God only knows what else and transplanted it to this little garden. So, I I can't explain why, but I I've always had this this urge to make a garden. And then in my before I had my first house, I lived in an apartment. But occasionally, I took care of the teenage children of some wonderful people who spent a great deal of time in Europe. And this one, I lived in their house and took care of their children. 
um, and this one time they were going away for the month of May and they said, Paige, do you see that long empty bed out there and I, on the, in the yard? And I said, yes. And she said, well, we have a charge account at Naples Nursery and we want you to go there and you do whatever you want. You, you design this garden, you fill it with plants and for us to see when we come home. And I was just so excited. And I kind of remember the border I made. It was full of white flocks and pink snapdragons. It was probably embarrassing as all get out. Um, but I had such excitement making that, that border. And then the first time I had a house with a yard of my own, I was down on my hands and knees right away with little children all around me because I had four children. Um, I hear women today saying, oh, they couldn't possibly garden because, because of their children, but they always knew that they could find me on my hands and knees in the garden somewhere. <laughs> and um, so anyway, and so I've had a series of gardens in a series of houses. And all that time, Jennifer, I was reading. Um, I love to read. And I read every gardening book I could get my hands on. And I think it really helped. I think the combination of actually doing the gardening and sometimes failing and sometimes having a success and at the same time reading what knowledgeable gardeners were saying um it it just it it it, it opened up the whole gardening world to me and um by the time by the time i got to duck hill the the garden where I was for 34 years. Um, I was in my early 40s and it, I started a garden from scratch there. And, and I, um, I based it around the house. It was an old farmhouse, a very simple old 19th century farmhouse. And I, I just started to make these gardens from the doorways that I would draw an axis from a doorway and then I would make a garden and they were geometric gardens they they were mostly all hedged which kind of went with the old-fashioned farmhouse and each part of the garden had a different personality and that's when I started to write about it now I want to go back to that early um, stretch of time in which you were uh, reading and doing and learning in these two very different but complementary ways. And there's something very poignant to me about that. Of course, it was in those years before the internet yeah. and online webinars and yeah, before computers. And there were also far fewer really organized um, public garden workshops and, and series as well. And so I'm sure there were, but I didn't know about them. <laughs> me either. They, they weren't, they weren't quite as ubiquitous. I don't think either, or, or they didn't reach quite as far. And there's something about the pace of that learning that you were doing, reading in conjunction with experimenting that, I think we sometimes lose today because there's so much information available so much of the time and so many voices coming at us of how you do it, why you do it, where you do it. And it's a little overwhelming. And the, the pace at which reading one book with one voice at a time and then putting that into action in the soil of of your own spot, there's something really liberating and um, like human scale about that. Yes, I think so. I hear it sometimes from young gardeners that they're or not even that young, that they're intimidated. And I just think that's the saddest thing. I think 
I'm always urging people to just get out there and start digging and and do what they love to do and not worry about it being judged or, Mm -hmm. but I think there, I think you're right, Jennifer, there's just so much between the internet and the blogs and the then masses and masses of books. Um, Sometimes books that you have trouble relating to because they're either too grand or, I mean, the gardens mm-hmm. are too grand or they're the wrong habitats or whatever. Right. I always think that getting out there and doing it and yeah. learning from it. And then there's so many wonderful books, even some of the books that I was reading way back when that, that are, I, a, a woman in Santa Fe wrote me an email the other day. She had read my new book and she said she, she said some people read cookbooks like novels, but she wrote, she reads garden books like novels. Uh, and I thought that was quite wonderful. Uh-huh, it is. You know, one of the things that resonated with in Uprooted was the fact that, you know, you as a lifelong and, you know, so-called expert gardener, which you are, but you are modeling for all of us that we are, we are, you still learning, you're still learning all the time and you're still experimenting and, and trying and reading others and then going back out and experimenting again. I, I have to say, I mean, I know that there are experts in the world, but I don't feel <laughs> I'm one. And I, I, um, and I shun away from from that word mm-hmm. expert, because you, I mean, one of the wonderful things about gardening is that you're always learning. Always. <laughs> and um, that will just go on forever. The wonderful thing about gardening is if, if you seem to know everything about something and I, one part of gardening, well, then go on and start, decide to do, do a rock garden or do, right. do, alpines or you know a water garden or mm-hmm. or what i'm doing which is learning all about deep rich woodland and high rocky woodland and yeah. i have a fan i didn't even know what a fan was <laughs> i'm jennifer jewell and this is cultivating place Paige Dickey is a gardener, garden designer, and author of garden books such as Embroidered Ground and Gardens in the Spirit of Place. We'll be right back with Paige to hear more. Stay with us. In this first segment of the conversation with Paige, I'm really stuck on this idea of how we learn to garden and how we learn to love our gardens, and gardening in time and space. We live in an ever more and more comparative culture and an online landscape that is a constant barrage of information and comparison. Everyone else's gardens look bigger, better, prettier, fuller, more everything. At the risk of sounding incredibly and irritatingly matronizing, I want to share that if I had one wish for anyone listening this week, it's this. Try to remember that everyone's garden started somewhere, and no one's garden is weed or pest or awkward section free. It's honest to goodness, not about the magazine cover shot, the comparison or competition of an Instagram post. Try to find time this week to just be with your garden and love the time and any small task you might engage in. Remember, even if you're looking out at a blanket of snow or a field of mud, why you came to love this friendship with the plants and the land in the first place. When and if you find yourself scrolling online or flipping through pages and feeling overwhelmed or feeling badly, rather than feeling filled up and excited, then just go outside and play a little, okay? Just go outside in the rain or the snow or the cool or the warm and be with your garden or the park or your trail. You will feel better. You will remember. You are a gardener and it's good.
We're back now to our conversation with gardener Paige Dickey. In addition to being a gardener, garden designer, and author of many notable books, she also sits on the board of the Garden Conservancy, was editor of the book Outstanding American Gardens, celebrating 25 years of the Garden Conservancy, and she was one of the original co-founders of the Garden Conservancy's Open Days Scheme. As we come back, she shares more about this very specific generosity of gardeners sharing their gardens with others. Describe for listeners um, who may not be familiar with your uh, life in the garden and as a writer at Duck Hill, because this is where you kind of come into your own um, maturity, uh, as it were, as a gardener and as a writer, uh, which doesn't mean you aren't still always maturing, but this is where you really hit your stride. Well, I, I've always been a writer downer. I mean, when I was a child, I, I had diaries. So even before I came to Duck Hill, for five years, I lived in a, in a different place where I had a garden. And then, and then shortly after I came to Duck Hill, I wrote um, and illustrated a journal, in this case, two journals, um, to give my kids and my then husband for Christmas. And a couple of friends saw these journals and said, oh, Paige, you really should write a book. And I had been starting to write magazine articles occasionally, but naively. I mean, I think I was so naive now, thinking back on it. I just sat down and started to write a book. And this is when I had been at Duck Hill for nine years. So, so... I was deeply into what I was doing in the making, it was all making gardens there. But we also had, my children were still, well, they were, most of them were teenagers. And we had a couple of horses and a pony and we had ducks and geese and chickens and rabbits and all of that. So that was also very much part of my life. So. I sat down and I wrote this book in essay form called Duck Hill Journal. Well, I wrote a little bit of it. Well, I think I wrote about half of it. And this friend of mine who was one of the ones urging me to write a book, Linda Yang was, is her name, was her name. I think she just died. And at the time she was the uh, garden editor at the New York Times. And she said, I want you to start writing and then I want you to send what you've written to this woman who was at that time her agent, you know, literary agent. So that's what I did. I wrote half of this book and I sent it to the literary agent and she, she wrote me back and said, I like it, keep writing. And so I wrote more to, I guess, three quarters of the book. And she said, okay, I'm going to send it to a publisher. And she sent it to this wonderful woman. This editor liked it and uh, told me to finish the book. And that, and I finished the book and it was published. And I mean, it was just so, and she wanted me to do drawings in it, which I painstakingly did. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure that that, anyway, I did do some drawings in it. And that was my first book. It was called Duck Hill Journal. And it was very personal. And it was a thrill, of course. And then I would say a year or two, maybe after that book came out, um, this agent, this literary agent, contacted me and said, um, I, how would you like to write a book about 10 right. yeah. garden designers in, in, um, in America and in Europe? And um, it's the idea of this photographer. Her name was Erica Lenard. And Erica was a fabulous photographer, not good at writing. So it was to be a partnership between the two of us. And I said, fine. Yeah. And it changed my life, Jennifer, because yeah. I'd really never been out of my own garden. And suddenly... I was traveling all over Europe and America 
getting to know these 10 designers, um, mostly whom I chose. Erica Lenard chose two. She said, these two must be in the book, an, a Frenchman and a, an American. And the rest were up to me to pick. And that was fun and daunting. We both, we both well, you know, we both agreed um, that we wanted them to be young and around 50 years old was, was pretty much the cutoff. And so anyway, this totally changed my life because I learned so much from these 10 garden designers and saw one of them, by the way, whom nobody knew about then was Pete Uldoff. And I mean, so there, quite a few of them went on to have extraordinary careers. And so that book was Breaking Ground. And yeah, and it was published in 91. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really embedded you, it sounds like, into the broader gardening community, which is really kind of, it, it informs a great deal of the rest of your of your gardening life. It does. And although I kept, you know, coming back to my own garden just because, that's where I love to be more than anywhere in the world, it just opened up my mind and my, my, my heart, my soul to the possibilities of gardens everywhere. And as you say, then the next series of books were um, also a, about design elements, but also about uh, designers elsewhere. Mm. Until finally, I guess after I'd been at Duck Hill for about 20 years, I, I wrote another personal book called Embroidered Ground. You know, th there are so many threads to pick up on in this stretch of your life. Of course, it constitutes a, a good portion of your learning and expanding and sharing forward with the larger gardening world. You also, you become involved in gardening communities. Can you share a little bit about your work with co-founding the Open Days of the Garden Conservancy and, and kind of why that was important to you and, and what what that represented to you as a gardener? A lot, Jennifer, actually, because I had been traveling all around seeing incredible gardens. And, and also, even with my first book, but certainly after that with all my other books, I would be asked to go give talks in Kansas and uh, Tennessee and so on. And every time I went somewhere to give a talk, my hosts would say, would you like to see some gardens? And you know what the answer to that yeah. is. <laughs> of course, I want to see gardens. So, so there was this whole world of gardens in America. And I knew about the national garden schemes in, in England, which I had been, which is the equivalent of our open days, except bigger. So I thought, I'm, I'm an optimist. And I thought, well, why can't we do that in this country? This was when this happened. What was this 25 years ago? Um, I was involved as a, on an advisory committee with the brand new Garden Conservancy, the national organization called the Garden Conservancy. I went to a friend of mine who's a great gardener and who happened to be English. And I said, what do you think? And she said, I, I don't see why we we couldn't have open garden thing in this country the way you, we do in England. And so the two of us went to Frank Cabot, who was the head of the Garden Conservancy, and proposed this open days. And Frank, who I, a lot of the people on the board were going mumble, 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 this will never work. Uh, well, maybe not a lot of people, but some. But Frank was a dreamer, kind of the way I am, except he was did it on an extraordinary scale. And he said, well, sure, let's try it. And so Peppy Maynard and I um, gathered 
word of mouth and snooping around, we gathered about 100 gardens in the New York metropolitan area. So it was New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, and asked the owners that they'd be willing to do it. And they were, much to everybody's surprise. And of course, it turned out to be a big, a big hit and um, has burgeoned ever since. But I think the reason it was so special for me was that I knew how much I learned by going to other people's gardens, number one. And number two, because Duck Hill had gained some notoriety and a lot of people were coming to see it, I knew how fun it was to share a garden with some with people. So going to see other people's gardens and sharing a garden with other people just it was very special to me. And um, still is, it still is. Most gardeners do love to share once they get over, you know, any uh, initial qualms about being judged or comparing or or the pressure That's in their garden. Like once you get talking with the generosity of another gardening soul, no matter what kind of gardener or where they come from, it is it, it is so. Um, it, it epitomizes why gardens are like food or music and they, they transcend all other differences. I think you're right. I think they do. And, and I've always loved the idea that the tiniest garden could be on open days as well as the big grand mm-hmm. garden with, you know, with several head, you know, several gardeners in tow. And don't you think, Jennifer, every time we go into a garden, we learn something? Oh, I mean, it, it could be, why haven't I ever thought of bringing that plant outside? You know, or it could be, I don't think, I wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, it could be yeah. a little oh, yeah. of sometime. But I just, it, it, to this day, every time I'm out looking at other people's gardens, I come home with ideas. Paige Dickey is a gardener, garden designer, and author of garden books such as Embroidered Ground and Gardens in the Spirit of Place. We'll be right back to hear more about Paige's newest book, Uprooted, which chronicles her most recent garden adventure of leaving and loss along with the gifts of rooting anew. Stay with us. Hey, so thinking out loud this week, it's the last week of the second month of the calendar year, and we're more than halfway between the winter solstice and the vernal equinox coming up towards the end of March. So no matter where you are, you might be feeling the beginnings of one season coming to a close and the next season being ushered in, even if it's just in tiny glimpses. The constant unfolding drama and theater of seasonal life is so much of what makes it unendingly mesmerizing, isn't it? It is for me. We have sprouts popping up out of damp soil, green buds pushing on branches throughout the wood and orchard here. Every season is the same in that it always feels like greeting old friends to see each plant take on its next season's form. Yesterday we spent time in the potting shed, starting four or five different kinds of spinach and lettuces. The act of sowing seed is one of such grand hope and commitment to partnering with this tiny little speck and its enormous possibility. And it is the act of sowing seeds that comes to mind when I think of every person who donates to the work of Cultivating Place. You are absolutely helping to sow seeds with the podcast and its work. Seeds that will take on life out there in the world somewhere, often in ways we can't see or know, we just believe in. The notes I get from people who believe this kind of civil gardening conversation, encouraging and empowering and engaging with gardeners around the world who want to make a difference, remind me of this truth every day. That these are, in many ways, life-changing conversations. 
something a listener named Sarah reminded me of by email recently. Our gardens change lives, and our gardening skills and hearts have the potential to change lives. And so thank you to those of you who have reached out and supported Cultivating Place financially recently. It is humbling and deeply meaningful to me personally that you have faith in the seeds we sow through this work. And so here's a monthly shout out to a handful of you for your support. Thank you, Bethann, Sam, Chad, Sherry, Christopher, Claire, Donna, Erica, David, Jan, Donald, Margaret, Marnie, Jenny, Sayaka, Sarah, Diana, Isabel, Jason, Caitlin, and Violet. If you're interested in supporting the work of Cultivating Place and its educational outreach, you can always do so by following the support button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. If you're on a mobile device like a phone, the support button is right in the center of the screen when you open the website. Thank you in advance for your support. I could not do this sustainably without you, and your support means the world. After 34 years of garden making at her famed house and garden known as Duck Hill, gardener and garden writer Paige Dickey decided with her husband Bosco that it was time to scale back. Her new book, Uprooted, is the story of leaving one beloved garden and of their finding a new kind of garden love rooting into their new home, garden, and land. In many ways, it is a universal story how we as gardeners can and do grow for the better. One of the things that I am so excited about in Uprooted is not only this sort of beautiful model of lifelong learning and how we improve throughout our lives in or expand and deepen is that your beautiful articulation and um, way with words and with plants and your evolving relationship with, with your gardens and with land mirrors so much of how our gardening collective has matured and evolved. And um, I find great hope in this page. Um, And it, it kind of goes back to that little you walking with your Aunt Helen and learning the names. And now you are back in this same place as a a more observant um, gardener. You're right. You're so right. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I think for a lot of us reading, um, Doug Ptolemy's book, uh, Bringing Nature Home, um, was, was, uh, an eye opener, you might say, of, of how, how easily we can, even on the smallest piece of land, we can create habitats for butterflies and, and bees and birds, um, and then to, I had no idea when we, well, I had little idea when, when we bought this place, church house, um, how important that wild land was going to be to me and how, how it just opened up a whole new life and world and, and passion. And, um, so so that's and and yes i think there's definitely i think we're all realizing um what native plants can can offer in wherever we live and um actually i've been a, a, not a plant nazi as some people say i mean in that i'll never stop um growing snowdrops and daffodils and so on. Um, But I've always been interested, especially traveling around America, um, 
seeing what the native habitat is. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in so many cases, it is so beautiful. Um, the, you know, um, and, and suddenly to have this first time in my life, I've had a piece of property where, where there's land that isn't cultivated. That's, that's just, and, and seeing what grows there naturally and how I can um, protect that and, and, uh, nurtured that uh, it has been a big thrill. For 34 years, you cultivated this three-acre, more formal, um, very uh, beautiful, seasonally changing, you know, sort of show garden at Duck Hill that was both personal but very public and, um, you know, captured in, in books beautifully. You kept diligent notebooks and journals throughout this. And so, you know, as your plant knowledge and experience increases, so does ours, because you are sharing it in words all the time and in, in talks. You, um, uh, you, one, one marriage comes to an end and, and towards the last, second, third, the the final third of your time at Duck Hill, you um, enter into uh, a marriage with Bosco, who is your your partner in all of these cultivating things ever since. And you you leave Duck Hill after 34 years. And any listener out there who has ever had to leave a garden that you have put your heart into, whether that's for five years or 34 years, will know that sensation of of both loss great loss and grief and and memories held in a place um but also that sort of interesting counteracting sense of opportunity and regrowth uh, uh in a new place and which which you described in the beginning and so this book uprooted which is just recently um out from Timber Press, which I almost like through through the book page, I, I kept wanting to to be like, maybe they should have called it rerooted. I don't know, because you you so clearly have put your roots down quite quickly in this place. So describe the finding of it and these 17 acres. Um yeah. Well, you you're right. I it was I it was it was a, a wrenching thing to leave Duck Hill, but also probably a sensible um, thing that the, as somebody, a friend said, it had, be, it had become a Herculean task to keep the garden up. And um, here, so everybody laughs at us. We not only moved north, but instead of three acres, we now have 17, <laughs> uh, which doesn't really sound like we're cutting back. But in fact, um, we no longer have three acres of cultivated land. Um, what we have instead are, are all around the house are these fields. And I mean, in some cases, a little bit of the fields were already here and I just keep enlarging them. I keep just not mowing you know, I, I I was just standing outside yesterday going, I'm going to make this meadow area bigger. Why do I need all this lawn? Anyway, and as these lawn areas become meadow areas, they come alive. And it is it has just been the most exciting thing to see. In our case, because we're we're on ledge, a lot of ledge rock and around the house and um and the soil is uh, like marble dust. I mean, limestone, it's very dry and very poor. And a lot of native meadow things love that. So they're flourishing things. I don't know if you grow out in the West Coast, um, little blue stem. I'm not sure you do, but it's a, it's a, it's a grass that, is just really beautiful uh, on the East Coast and also I think in the Midwest. And um, it, it's just, it, it turns the most beautiful color in the fall. And um, it's just happy as a clam. And um, 
and then things like butterfly weed, uh, Asclepias tuberosa, and and all sorts of wonderful wildflowers have are just spreading. I've given them the license to just spread. We do we, and that's me, I, and um, a young man who works for me once a week named John. And John and I do pull up um, invasives in the in the meadows. And I mean, people think we're crazy, but um, but it makes such a difference. The way the book is organized, you know, it is so rich a book in its um, plant descriptions, in its plant names. I found myself taking wonderful lists of plants I would like to try that might be, uh, might have a chance in in the West. And, um, but throughout the narrative from that beginning description of your earliest influences that you read to us to the to the very end um it is such a beautiful progression of you not only engaged with the gardens but as you say engaging in new and different and really beautiful ways with the larger land and the creatures, the birds, the butterflies, the invasives, knowing what they are, removing them where you can to give little plants a chance um, to maintain these really interesting ecosystems like the fen um, and also working your limitations as humans for you and Bosco in into this narrative. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's been invigorating. I bet it, it 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 seems to have been, and the the construction of the book, uh, from finding a place to you know, this is you you the two of you deciding you you need a new place and that you want it to be yours together, um, and then finding it, and um, each of these steps kind of. Um, are lessons in themselves. It's interesting. I was taught, I had one of my daughters lives in Colorado and she's quite a gardener. And uh, she finished the book uh, the other night and called me and, and um, I don't know if I can explain, she explained it so beautifully and I, I can't quite remember her words, but, but she said what was different about this book was that I was observing and learning from my observations as I wrote the book. Mm. And so the reader of the book is going along with me, observing um, decisions about, you know, what to plant and, and what interacts with, you know, and the interaction of plants and, and, and so on. But it's almost as though, you're walking and talking with me. I don't know quite yeah. how to explain yeah. it. No, it's a very personal journey. Yes. And it, and it is also a bit of a memoir, um, more than I think my other books, you know, talking a little bit about our lives and Bosco and my lives and, and being together here. You know, if anyone has read any of your other books or heard you speak or, or seen your work, it is very associated with the cultivated garden and um, the beauty and structure of that. And just the cover of this book with the picture of that star flower from your woodlands and its whole system exposed from its roots to its little rhizome to its stem and flowers and leaves. There's um, something really metaphoric about that. Um, and it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I um, the photographer was this wonderful woman named who who's in your book. Knock yes, Nock Nock Minow is a just a phenomenally beautiful yeah. um, eye in this world. Yes, she she was it was one May and she was here photographing and I was struggling with what to put on the cover of the book and I I I got this idea that it would be wonderful to put a, a wildflower and I said. Knock it. If I dig up a wildflower um, so that you can see its roots, um, will you take a picture for the cover of the book? And she said, okay. 
And so I went down and, and I, and this star flower was in bloom and it's just the most delicate um, beguiling plant. And so I did, I dug it up and I shook, shook the roots away. I mean, I shook the dirt away from the roots and brought it up to her and she said, put it on the garage floor. <laughs> and, and she got her big camera on a, on a tripod and took a picture of it. And when it was all done, I, I rushed the plant back to the woods and replanted it. But um, so it, it is, it is, um, and I, about, the, about the title of the book, um, I really, in the beginning, I really was uprooted. And, and I had no idea really, I had no idea when we bought this place where it would take me. I, I, I was still uprooted. I mean, I, I'm a nest builder, so, you know, it was, it was great to have a new nest and to be concentrating on that. Um, but I really didn't know, I didn't know how rich, um, how many roots I was going to put down here. Um, that evolved. Yeah. So when you thought about the wildflower in its full form being photographed for the cover, what was at the heart of that for you? Well, I'm going to disappoint you, Jennifer, because I, I'm not sure it was really so deep in thought. I wanted a plant and I wanted to see the roots for obvious reasons because of, of, of the title of the book. But because I had become so in love with and so engrossed with what was growing in our woods, um, I wanted the image to be from there. And this, this, this is not deep. Why? Why would that disappoint me, Paige? <laughs> I, there was nothing terribly philosophical about it. It's just the way. But that's very philosophical. That is, that is beautiful. I, I don't know. When it first came out, I thought, oh, maybe people are going to think this is a murder mystery. But, <laughs> but I, I love the cover of the book. And, and I think it's to- just beautiful. It is unexpected and it is, um, yeah, it is beautiful. It, it speaks to the whole system. And um, you you just earlier in another um, answer said something like, I have given them um, permission or lease to, 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 you know, go wild or grow or something. And I, 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 I almost wanted to say, and they have given you that permission too. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, when you, uh, I, I just fully enjoyed the whole book and we could do a whole nother episode on every single thing in the book. But um, I do hope listeners and readers will go and um, hear you speak about it. Uh, look up maybe the Garden Conservancy talk you gave on it so that they can see some of the photographs in addition to those that are in the book. Um, when you look back over your long career now, um, in this work, uh, both in the community of gardeners, in your own experience in your own gardens, and as a writer and expressor of these things, do you see the the importance of gardeners shifting, changing, growing? Where do you see gardeners sitting as important um influencers in our world, Paige? Well, I, I, I mean, I think right now the most pressing thing is, our, is taking care of our environment. And, um, and I think gardeners understand that. They understand about pollution and they under, I mean, I'm hoping I, I, if anybody's eyes are, are open to, to, the whole um, global uh, uh, um, 
I'm trying to think of the right word, the, the catastrophe that is looming. Um, I think of all, of anybody, we gardeners can be stewards and messengers of, of, of how to take care of our land and not, you know, get away from pesticides and giant lawns and, um, and invasive plants and um, blowers. I don't know what you call those things that you yeah, yeah. blowers that are just the most horrible polluters. Um, whatever happened to a rake? And um, just, just to, to, I think, I think we, I think it's, it's wonderful if gardeners can share that with other people, can, can, can um, help with this whole uh, scary predicament we're in right now. I mean, I, I I'm sounding like I'm going to, I'm in a, I'm going to end in a down note, but um, but the whole global warming is is a, is a terrifying thing f f for our children, for our grandchildren, um, for for life in the future. And as gardeners, um, we can help with that. We can be planting trees. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you know. Because I, we are not going to end on a down note, um, and the uh, and nor 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 do you in your work, and I'm sure you're working on on a new book. No, and, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, we'll see, we'll see. I don't believe you, but that's okay. Um, the I think one of the you know one of the great takeaways from Uprooted for me is that you demonstrate how we as gardeners can continue to learn no matter how long we've been at this game. So if we did not recognize and see and have a relationship with the wild plants and insects and birds of our place and, and mammals of our place prior, we can now, it's never too late to, to build that. And, you know, gardeners have been a part of the problem in the past with all kinds of things. And, and I think this is a, a really important way to interrogate ourselves about not being um, part of the problem, but being messengers of ways forward. I agree with you. I agree. And, and I, th I think people, I think gardeners are more and more and more aware of all of this and um, more aware of how important organic gardening is. And there's a fervor among young gardeners, I think, um, that I just love to see. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for, for being a guest on the program and for this new book to your, um, your many books. And uh, thank you very much for being a guest cultivating place is is a is a wonderful learning thing for all of us thank you Paige Dickey is a gardener, garden designer, and author of many notable garden books. She is also the co-founder of the Garden Conservancy's Open Days Scheme in the U.S. Her newest book, Uprooted, is available now from Timber Press, and it is evocatively photographed by Nock Min No. Join us again next week when we go even further north to Canada. Spring is still a ways off for many of us, and so we head north to learn more about the enthusiastic and intrepid deep winter gardening and season-extending skills of Nikki Jabour. Her abundant gardening on the 45th parallel will invigorate anyone. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and the podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. To all of you who donate in support of this work, thank you. We could not do it, certainly not sustainably, without you. 
While you're at the website, make sure to check out this week's episode show notes and meander through the photos of Paige Dickey's gardening life from Duck Hill to Church House. It's a very soothing midwinter or early spring virtual garden field trip. Enjoy. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.